would uh, like for you to do me a favor, indulge me just a little bit. I, I would like for you to imagine something. So if, if you're one of those people, you have to close your eyes in order to imagine something, you know, feel free to do that. If you can imagine with your eyes wide open, hey, good thing for you. Uh, here's what I'd like for you to imagine. I, I would like for you to imagine a world without questions. Just think about it for a moment. Just imagine a world, world where there were no questions, only commands, only statements, only answers. Imagine a world where you couldn't ask how, or what, or when, or where, or why. A world without questions would be the death of curiosity. It would be the end of investigation. It would be the abolishment of critical thinking. If we lived in a world without questions, people would be hopelessly trapped in lies whether through deception or ignorance. Uh, a world without questions would be a world without enlightenment. It would be without a significant means to surface and discover what is true. So questions are a really, really big deal. Asking questions are a really big deal because when you, when you or when I, when we, when we ask questions, it signals that we're open to the truth. When we ask questions, it signals that we are open to the fact that we might be wrong about what we thought was the truth. And so that's why we're beginning this brand new series called You Ask For It because I believe and I hope that we all believe that the local church should be the best place for people to explore their curiosities and their doubts about God, the scriptures, about faith, and about how those things intersect with their life and with other people's lives. I think the local church ought to be a safe place to ask questions and to receive answers or if nothing else, at least be able to hear a discussion or a conversation around the question. I'm convinced that most people have at least one question they would love to have God answer for them or have somebody else answer it for them or just like I said, hear a conversation about it. And so maybe you have one of those questions. Maybe you have multiple of those questions, but you've not shared them with us yet. We've already received so many questions. We could spend the next couple of years uh, talking about your questions, but we're not going to do that. But I want to give you one last opportunity in case you have a big question, a great question that may just be one of those questions that everybody will remember at the end of this series. So if you have a question or questions, you have one last opportunity to text ASK to 313131. So all of you in Somerset, Williamsburg, here in London, text ASK, beware of spell correct, ASK to 313131. All right, and ask your question. Now, maybe you're here and you would say, I don't have any questions. Well, good for you. Apparently, you have all the answers. You just don't have all the right answers. Uh, maybe, maybe you're here and you kind of think like one of our modern-day philosophers or poets. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name is Lil Wayne. And, and Lil Wayne said, I am a gangster. And gangsters don't ask questions. I promise that's what Lil Wayne said. It's right there. Uh, uh, it's right there. I'm a gangster and gangsters don't ask questions. So, you know, if you don't remember anything else about the sermon today or the series, here's the takeaway. Don't be a gangster. Because having questions and, you know, asking questions, 
that's a really good thing. And that's what this series is all about. Now, perhaps like me, you grew up in a church where you didn't feel comfortable asking your questions because uh, you thought that people would judge you or you were fearful of that they would think you're evil or you, you just didn't know how it would be received because it didn't seem like a safe place to ask questions. And, and I grew up before Google, and many of you grew up before Google when we were, you know, in our childhood and teenage years in the local church. And so now, you know, there's search engines, and anybody can ask anything and find answers. But I still think, even in the day of search engines, I still think and believe that the local church should be the best place to have these questions and answers and conversations about God and faith and scripture and how all that intersects with our lives. So that's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. And if you don't like the content, hey... Guess what? It's not my fault. That's on you. All right? Because you are shaping the series and you get to decide what it's all about. So I tried to pick the best question to start this series off with. And, and there were more than a few questions along this uh, idea or, you know, under this subject heading. And so I mashed together a couple of different uh, questions and made them one thing that we would talk about. And I just thought that this was the best place to start week one. So let's jump in. Here was the question. How can I change the things in my life that need to be changed? It's a good question. I think probably all of us have asked that question once upon a time. But, but here, here's another question that's attached to that first question. Why is it so difficult to change? It's like, ah, it is difficult to change. Why is it difficult to change? So that's kind of like a second question. And how can I sustain the change that I attempt? And that's a third question, and it's different from the second, which is different from the first. But this is really one big question and one big idea and one big subject that I think this would be the perfect weekend to talk about this because here we are at the beginning of a brand new year. And this question or these questions, they surface a struggle that I have had all my life. It surfaces a struggle that I have in my life right now. It surfaces a struggle that I'll have for the rest of my life. It surfaces a struggle that you've had, that you have right now, that you'll always have. And the struggle is with positive change that leads to progress. We all struggle making positive changes that ultimately result in personal progress for whatever reason. We all have that struggle. We have had that struggle. We have that struggle. We will have that struggle. And so when we think about this type of change, this positive change, now, you know, there's all kinds of change that we can't control and, you know, the world changes and, you know, people change and there's all of that, but, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about positive changes that leads to personal growth, positive changes that will change your life for the good and for the better. And so when you think about this kind of change, we have to think about it's the life that I could have. It's the life that perhaps I should have. It's a better life. It's what I believe the best life is. And so in order to give us all the same starting point uh, so that we can all move in the same direction of where we're heading in this uh, sermon, I, I want us to think about this change in terms of different types of change. Now, there's all kinds of change, but I want to give you three that I think are most relevant for us uh, related to the question that we're talking about and related to the time of the year that we're in. So types of changes. I think there's three that's super relevant for this question and for the time of year. There's desired change, there's necessary change, and there's wise change. Uh, desired change is change that you recognize that it's going to be good for you if you change something. If you change that, it's going to be good for you. If you change that, it's going to be good for your family. It's going to be good for your marriage. It's going to be good for your finances. It's going to be good for your health. It's going to be good for your business. It's just going to be good for your faith. And so you recognize that and you recognize it to the point that you actually, you want to make those changes. 
You, you want your marriage to be better. You want your health to be better. You desire that. And, and so it's desire change. And then there's necessary change. Uh, necessary change is the doctor looking at you and saying, if you don't change, this is going to end badly. If you, don't get a, if you don't get a hold on this, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, if you don't start doing some new things, if you don't get moving, if you don't eat less of that, if you don't drink less of that, if you, if you don't start doing this, this is going to be bad for you. That's necessary change. It's like, if you don't do it, it's just going to be bad. This is your finances screaming at you saying, you know what? You, you can't continue to do what you've been doing. You have to change or the bottom's going to fall out. You, you're just going to have to. It's your wife saying, this is the last time we're going to talk about this. This is, this is the husband saying, this is the last time we're going to talk about this. If things don't change, they have to change. Necessary change. Necessary change is not something that you uh, particularly desire, but you have to do it because it's necessary. But then there's wise change. And in wise change, it's not necessarily something that you desire, and technically it's not necessary. You recognize, however, that there's a better way to do it. There's a better way to live. There's a better way to manage your money. There's a better way to plan for the future. There's a better way to eat. There's a better way to exercise. There's a better way to engage in your friendships. There's a better way, you know, to relate to your wife or to your husband or raise your kids. You know, you don't necessarily want to do it. And it's not that you really have to do it, but you realize it's the wise thing. Because you realize you might be flirting with some things that are going to undermine your future potentially, eventually. That, that you are flirting with some things that may devastate your life, your relationship, your finances. And, and so you realize it's the wise thing to do. Because if you don't change, it could undermine your future and it could devastate where you want to go. And so there's desire change, there's necessary change, and there's wise change. And so here's what I want to be clear about. We all love the idea of change. And particularly this time of year, we love the idea of change. But here's our struggle. We struggle with initiating and implementing and sustaining change. That's where our struggle is. It's not so much that, hey, you know, we hate the idea of change. More times than not, we don't. We, we love the idea of change and what good it can bring to our lives, but we struggle with initiating change, implementing the change, and sustaining the change. And so every January, end of December, the first of January, people begin to flirt with change because we love the idea that our life and the quality and the direction of our life could go in a good direction. So we begin to flirt with change. Some of you, you've been flirting with change now for a few days, and some of you, as you flirted with change, you went to the bookstore and you bought a book. <laughs> and it was a book about what you needed to change and how to change it. Maybe you ordered it off Amazon. Maybe you're reading it on your phone. You're reading it on your iPad. But you, you, you're flirting with change. You've bought a book. You're reading a book. How long has it been since you read a book? You don't care. You're reading the book. Because this book is going to make a big difference in your life. Some of you, listen, to flirt with change, you had to clean out the pantry. You cleaned out all the garbage and all the junk and all the processed food and all the gluten and all the sugar and all the carbs. And you have made way for the low-carb, no-carb, high-protein, high-saturated, healthy fat. You are ready. You've cleaned out the refrigerator. There's room for the fruits. There's room for the veggies. There's room for the non-processed food, for the grass-fed beef and, you know, the cage-free chicken. There's room for all of that. You're ready. You're flirting with it. Now, you've not eaten any of it yet. Some of you, you've not even placed your order on Amazon for it yet. But you've cleaned it out and you're flirting. 
For some of you, you, you went out and you, you were flirting so heavily, you bought a juicer. You, you don't even know how to use it, but you've got a juicer. And you've been telling people, we bought a juicer. Yeah, we did. We bought a juicer. We're very happy about it. Where's it at? Well, it's over there in the box, but we bought a juicer. Some of you, you went out and you bought vitamins. I mean, vitamins. I mean, pantothenic acid. You, you wanted to go out and get your turmeric. You wanted to get your lithium. No, that's not a vitamin. You, you, want, you wanted to get, you know, your vitamin B12, your vitamin B6, your vitamin D3, your vitamin D5. And, and you wanted to get, you know, your CoQ10. And you wanted to get all that stuff. You're flirting with change. Some of you, you bought a treadmill. Why didn't you do what the rest of us did? We took the clothes off the treadmill we bought three years ago. And, and now we're thinking about using it. For some, some of you, you know, you, you decided you, you were going to do something really big, really big deal. You went and bought a water bottle. Not sure why, but you see all these other people walking around with water bottles. And, and so you decided that you weren't going to settle for the 12 ounce and the 16 ounce and the 24 ounce and the 32 No, 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 no. You went and got the half gallon. And you're walking around with the biggest water bottle anybody's ever seen in their life. They're looking at you like you're weird, but you don't care because you've got a water bottle and you've never been more hydrated. Right? You've not finished it yet. You've been sipping on it for six days. You're not finished yet, but you have a water bottle. For some of you, your finances, you, you know, you, you, you went in there to your wife and, you, you know, you had to get your courage up and you had to kind of buck yourself up to do it and say, honey, I, I want the credit cards. Here's mine. I want your credit cards. We can't do this anymore. We're, we're going to cut them up. We're going to cut Give me the credit cards. That, that's not all. I'm, what about the ones at the top of the closet? Get the, get the, get the credit cards. What, what about you? I know. Bring it out. Okay. And then you put them on the table and you put a pair of scissors there. And you, you just love the idea of cutting those babies up. Now, you've not cut them up yet. But you've got the tools to do it when and if you decide to do it. Because we love to flirt with change. We love the idea of change. But let me tell you what we don't like. We don't like the process of change. Because that's where it gets hard. So that's one of the facts of change. One of the facts of change is this right here. Positive change is rarely easy. If it were easy, everybody would do it. Now, we've all experienced this. You decided. You've decided multiple times. Okay, this time's different. I'm changing. I've got to change this. I have to change this. Doctors told me I had to change this. She's told me I had to change this. He told me, I know. It's wise. I'm changing it. And it didn't take. Or you didn't even get off the ground with it because you just kind of assumed you weren't going to stick to it. You weren't going to follow through with it. You, you were afraid, you were intimidated, and you just, you found out what we've all found out. Positive change is rarely easy. Now, this truth also finds some very serious application and reality in, in our lives and in the lives of those we care about and those we work with. Do you know of people who try to attempt change, only 25% succeed with sustained change? Of, of people who attempt change, only 25% of attempted change becomes sustained change. For people who have, you know, a problem with alcohol, they, they drink too much. They just lose control. They, they can't stop at one. They can't stop at two. They can't stop at three. You know, and, and they've, just, they've just got out of control with it. For folks who decide they're going to either stop drinking or they're just going to drink less, 40 to 60% of people who make a decision about drinking less or not drinking at all relapse. 40 to 60%. For folks who find themselves on prescription pain medication, 90% who decide, I'm not going to take that pill anymore, 90% will take that pill again. Because positive change is rarely easy. And it doesn't matter what type of change we're talking about, desired 
necessary or wise. It's just not easy. Here's the second fact about change. The older we get, the less open we are to change. We get settled in our ways. And the problem with getting settled in our ways is this. Our ways, they're typically not the best way. We, we settle for bad habits and we settle for mediocrity and we just, we, we get into these patterns of bad behavior that undermine our present and undermine our future. And the older we get, we just, we just, we just think, I, you know, I've been doing this too long. I've been this way forever. You know, I'm, I'm just, hey, this, this is me. This is the way it's going to be. And we get settled. But here's the good news. Here's the third fact of, of change. Everyone has the capacity to change. Let's all just say that together on three. One, two, three. Everyone has the capacity to change. So here, here's what I want us to do next, though. There in Williamsburg, Somerset, here in London. I want us to personalize the statement. And in just a moment, I want us to say together, I have the capacity to change. Let's say it together. I have the capacity to change. And you need to know that. You need to believe that because it's absolutely true. You have the capacity to change. Now, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be convenient. It's going to be painful. And it's going to be costly. And it's going to be uncomfortable. But positive change that leads to progress, it's always going to be worth it. And so the question is not, can I change? That's never the question. The question really is, will I change? It's not, can you change? It's, will you change? Now, if you're a Jesus follower, we're so glad you're here, here on the first Sunday of the new year. If you're not a Jesus follower, we're so glad you're here on the first Sunday of the new year, and you need to know we built this place for you. And, and whether or not you're a Jesus follower or not, you may or may not be aware of the fact that when Jesus taught, Jesus only taught what Jesus followers should do or how Jesus followers should look. Jesus didn't teach concerning how non-Jesus followers should live their lives. Jesus taught what Jesus followers should look like when they follow him. And then, you know, coincidentally, the rest of the New Testament is about that as well. The rest of the New Testament is not telling non-believers how they're supposed to live their lives or non-Jesus followers how they're supposed to be living their lives. It is actually teaching Jesus followers how they are supposed to live their lives. So if you are a Jesus follower, Jesus, he taught all the time about what your life is supposed to look like. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, he taught what life is supposed to look like if you decide to become a Jesus follower. And he taught what he was inviting you into, what he was calling you out of. And so when Jesus taught, he taught that on the other side of eternal life was a better life. Now, we talk about that a lot around here. And Jesus taught what that better life looked like. And he did so by talking about it in terms of the ideal life and real life. Jesus talked about the ideal life. That is the life that God intends for you. That is God's design for your life. That is God's will for your life. The ideal life. And so Jesus would say, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, or blessed are those who do this and blessed are those who do that. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you because this is the ideal life. This is the life that God has called you to. And Jesus would call people to the ideal life. He would point them toward the ideal life. But here's the thing, and don't miss this. Jesus called people who would follow him to the ideal life, but he refused to condemn them when they fell short of the ideal life. 
Jesus called people to the ideal life, but when their real life resembled nothing of the ideal life, Jesus refused to condemn them. Because for those who fall short of the ideal life, Jesus would say there's grace and forgiveness. He promoted ideal, but he refused to condemn those who fell short of it. And that's a big deal. Jesus said the ideal life is preferring other people over yourself. That's the ideal life. The ideal life is if you follow me, I want you to sacrifice whatever for the good of other people. I want you to be willing to sacrifice anything for the good of other people. If you follow me, let me tell you what the ideal life looks like, Jesus would say. It means forgiving people when they do you wrong, no matter what that wrong was. It means being patient with people. It means choosing kindness over rudeness, self-control over gluttony, generosity over greed, and joy over misery. He said, that's the ideal life. And if you're going to follow me, I'm going to call you to that ideal life. I'm going to point you in the direction of that ideal life. I want you to aspire to that ideal life. I want you to make the tweaks and the changes to your real life that helps you take a step in the direction of that ideal life. But again, Jesus would remind us, when you fall short in your real life of the ideal life, I will not condemn you. I love you and I will forgive you. So don't try to redefine what ideal is. Don't try to dumb down what ideal means. Because when you fall short of it, there's grace for it. And so Jesus taught about this ideal life. And he says, when you're living your real life, aspire for this ideal life. And here's what it looks like. And then the rest of the New Testament is basically written, teasing out what Jesus taught, saying, okay, if you make the applications of Jesus' teaching to your life, this is what your life's going to look like. If you aspire for, work towards, begin to make the necessary changes to your real life in order to pursue the ideal life, here's what that looks like. This is what it's going to look like for you at home, with your family. This is what it looks like in your finances. This is, this is what it looks like. And perhaps the person who wrote the most about this, or perhaps I think most eloquently about this, was a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul would often write about this ideal life and what it looks like when we apply the teachings of Jesus. But Paul would also talk about how the change that we have to make in order to take a step in the direction of the ideal. And even though we'll never make the ideal life in perfection, that's just not going to happen. We're always going to fall short in some way, in some area. Paul would say, even though it's impossible to attain the ideal life in this life, still aspire for it, still work towards it, still take a step in that direction and make the necessary changes that you need to make in order to embrace moving towards the ideal life. And so Jesus, he would teach this, Paul would teach this, and, and Paul, he would write about, hey, here's how you change some things in your real life in order to take a step towards the ideal life. And so here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to show us today how to change. The practical steps of how to change. How to make the desired change, the necessary change, the wise change. And he's going to show us where change actually begins. So I'm going to pick it up in the middle of a letter that he's writing to a group of Christians in uh, Ephesus. And he's writing to Jesus followers about the fact that they used to not be Jesus followers, but now they're Jesus followers and they should be different now than they were before. And so here's where he begins. He says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, 
that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In other words, the non-believers, the pagans. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do because that's not who you are anymore. And Paul, over and over again, he would teach that when you become a follower of Jesus, that you place your faith in the death and the resurrection of Christ and what that means for you and the fact that you can be fully received by God, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that you are loved and accepted because of what Christ did for you. When you place your faith in that, Paul taught that you became a new person. That you became a new creation. That old things started to pass away and behold, new things started to become reality. He says, so stop living like you used to live. And then he says, don't be like those Gentiles who live like they do in the futility of their thinking. Futility being that they think without purpose. They, they think without aim. They think without any intentionality. They, they have no real value system. For the pagans that Paul had in his mind that he was pointing to, for those pagans, it didn't matter how they lived. It didn't matter how they treated people. In their worldview, the gods really didn't care how they behaved. As long as the gods had their appeasement on certain things, hey, you could be your own god. Pursue pleasure no matter the cost. Be irresponsible no matter if it hurts you, no matter if it hurts anybody else, because it really doesn't matter. So rationalize your behavior, justify your behavior, make excuses about your behavior. Paul said, that's what the non-believing pagans do. That's what their belief system and their thinking leads to. He says, that shouldn't be true for you. Don't rationalize your behavior. Don't justify your behavior. Don't make excuses about your behavior because that's what you used to do. But now you're a Jesus follower and you understand that how you live matters. How you treat people matters. You understand now, because of a new way of thinking, that you understand you have values that are not of this world. That you have a new way of living because your thinking has changed. He says, once upon a time, your thinking was empty, but now you're thinking with a purpose. Now you're thinking aspiring to this ideal, to a better life, to your best life. He said, things are different now. And here's the point that, that Paul's making. Following Jesus, maybe not in a moment, maybe not in a month, maybe not in a year, maybe not even in 10 years, but when you decide to follow Jesus and place your faith in Jesus, you enter into a process that begins to affect the way that you think, it begins to affect your value system, and ultimately it begins to affect your behavior. And Paul said, okay, you're a Jesus follower. So it's different for you now. You don't think like you used to think. And so he goes on. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. And so when he's talking about understanding and he's talking about thinking, it it's really doesn't sound spiritual as much as it does cerebral. And Paul's making a big, big point here. That the quality of your living is connected to the quality of your thinking. He, he says their understanding, they have a fault in their understanding. Their heart has become hardened. Their conscience has gone silent. Things that used to bother them no longer bothers them. That should bother them. And this is the precondition. This is what happens just before you and I make the worst decisions of our life. This is what happens when our thinking gets haywire, 
When our conscience goes silent, when we're no longer bothered by what used to bother us, but it should bother us, that's when we are prime and ready to make decisions that will become the greatest regrets of our life. I can tell you from experience, that is part of my story. For some of you, you could get a microphone and you could tell us how it is part of your story. Your conscience went silent. Your heart became hardened. And you were no longer bothered by the way that you treated other people, by the way that you treated you, by the way that you lived. And Paul said, this is a problem. He says, they've lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. And again, this is all because of the way they think. It began with futile thinking, with a dark understanding a hardened heart. And he says, this ultimately leads to making some bad trades. You'll trade what is eternal for what is temporary, what is valuable for what is cheap. They became enslaved to their appetites, their sexual appetites, their physical appetites, whatever it was, their lust for power, their lust for wealth. They became slaves to their appetites. Now, Paul, he, he would write about this in another place in Romans chapter one. And in Romans chapter one, he said that there was a group of people that when they knew God, they refused to glorify him as God. And so they ended up worshiping creation rather than the creator. And it says that, that God gave them over to their appetites, to their lust, and to their passions. That's the same idea where Paul says that they gave themselves over to their own sensuality, that they became their own God. They removed all the boundaries. They took off the seatbelt. They took off all the restraints. Whatever, whoever, whenever, it didn't matter. Greedy, everyone and everything, it exists for me. So they gave themselves over and perhaps God gave them over. And here's what I think. I may be wrong, but I don't think that I am. When God really wants to judge us, I think he just lets us have our way. When God really wants to let judgment fall, I think he just lets us have what we thought we needed. We see this happening in the nation of Israel in the history of the Old Testament, that God would let them have what they needed even though what they needed or what they thought they needed was not what they needed. I could tell you stories and you could tell me stories about that moment, that time, that season, that year, that period of time where you wanted that, you wanted them, you wanted it, and you just kept moving in that direction and moving in that direction and moving in that direction, and you silenced your conscience. That conscience which told you, you don't need that, you don't need that, that's gonna be bad, that's gonna be bad, that's gonna be bad, that's gonna hurt you, that's gonna hurt them, that's gonna hurt a lot of people. And then you got what you wanted. And when you got what you wanted, you didn't want it anymore because you realized what had happened. And this is what Paul says. This is how important it is to be thinking right because this is where this all started with bad thinking. He says, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you learned about Christ. And you were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He says, okay, once upon a time, yeah, that's how you thought, but now you came to Jesus and you don't think that way anymore. He says, we've learned a new way, a better way. And he says, this is what we've learned from Jesus. And so we all should just stop for a moment and say, okay, well, what, what's he talking about? What did we learn from Jesus? Well, I have an idea. I think he's referencing back to the very first message of Jesus, which was the consistent message of Jesus. 
Here's what Matthew recorded as Jesus' first sermon. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, right? Now, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, I grew up in, grew up in the type of church that every time somebody said the word repent, they had to yell, repent! You know, it's just not a word that you can say passively, repent, repent. Kingdom of him? No. It was like, repent. Yeah. Glory to God. I'm calling you out tonight. Sinners, turn, burn, repent. Get on this sawdust trail. Repent. Get, you know, all that. And we thought it was all about being sorry for your sin. It was all about emotional. It was all about crying. If you were a woman and went to the altar and you didn't get up with mascara down past your chin, you didn't repent. <laughs> if you were a man and you came down and you prayed and you didn't get up with your eyes bloodshot, you didn't repent. Some church people, the seasoned church people, they were thinking, they were looking at you thinking, man, that's not real. That's not real. You can't, you can't do that and not cry. It's not real. When Jesus said repent, here's what the word means. It means to have a primal change of thought. It means to change the way you think. To change your values, to change your worldview, to change the way that you perceive and process the world around you. And here's what Jesus taught, which was what Paul was teaching the people in Ephesus. Jesus taught that you shouldn't even think about changing your behavior until you change the way you think. You can't change your behavior unless you change the way that you think. That's getting the cart before the horse if you try to change your behavior. That's just behavior modification. But if you really want to change, desire change, necessary change, wise change, you got to change first the way that you think. Where do you think Paul got the idea that the quality of your living is connected to the quality of your thinking? It was Jesus. Jesus came along and said, hey, repent. Change the way you think about God. God's not angry with you. God loves you. Change the way you think about sin. Sin will harm you. Sin will harm those that you care about. Hey, change the way that you think about you. God thinks you're great. God thinks you're wonderful. He sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. You're the treasure of his eye. So change the way you think about you. Change the way you think about other people. Every person is a person for whom Jesus died. So you should see that person with dignity, respect, love, and serve them because that person is made in the image of God and God sent his son to die for them. So you just need to change the way you think. Change the way you think about money. Change the way you think about giving. Change the way you think about taking. Change the way you think about worry. Change the way you think about this and change your way of thinking about that. That was Jesus' message. Because Jesus knew we would never change what needs to be changed until we change the way that we think. And so Paul says, you were taught with regard to the former way of life. Back when, back when you thought a different way. To put off your old self, that's important, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. So Paul says, listen, there, there's an old part of you. There's a new part of you. There's a former way of life that shouldn't be as true about you today as what it was once upon a time. There, there's a part of you, Paul would say, that's trying to convince you that what you want, that you know is not best for you, is really best for you. Paul said there's an old you which is not the new you, but the new you is still fighting against the old you. And the old you is constantly trying to undermine you. And the old you is always trying to deceive you because there's two of you. And they're fighting in a tug of war. And the old is working against you and undermining your future. The old part of you nurses, you know, uncommitment. 
It, it settles for mediocrity. It, it craves for hypocrisy. It prefers the cheap over the value, value you know, over the valuable. It, it prefers the temporary over the eternal. And Paul said, hey, there's this battle going on. There's a part of you that doesn't want to change. There's a part of you that doesn't want what's better or what's best. Paul said, that's true of you. There's an old you, but there's also a new you. And so it's like Paul brings us to this moment to where we just want to say, well, then what do we do? What do we do? How do we deal with this? He says, you're to be made new in the attitude of your mind. This is big. That the newness of living that you crave begins with newness of thinking. That the idea of how you think and what you think, it will determine how you live and what you do. Now, Paul, he talked about this. I don't have time to tell you about it, but he taught about this over and over and over again. He taught about this in Galatians 5. He taught about it in Romans 8. He talked about it in Colossians 3. He said, set your mind on things above. Now, this is a big deal, and this may be worth your trip. Paul said, set your mind. In other words, you direct your thinking. Too many people think they're a victim of their own thinking. Never allow yourself to say or believe, I just can't help how I think. Yes, you can. You are not a victim of your thinking. You are the architect of your thinking. You get to design what you think and how you think. You're not a victim of your thinking. You can set your mind on what you want to set your mind on. That's what Paul taught. That's what the New Testament teaches. And so Paul, he believed that a new way of living, to change what needs to be changed, it just begins with a new way of thinking. The most famous thing he said about this was in Romans 12. He said, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And then this is the part. Maybe you, you remember a version that says, and be not you know, conformed to this world, but transformed. But, but I like, I like the, the, the way of this translation. Don't copy the behavior and, and customs of this world. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How, Paul? How? How? By changing the way you talk to me? Think. Don't get sucked into cycles where you end up managing your money like everybody else manages their money. Don't get caught in. Don't get sucked into a way of raising your kids like everybody else that's in conflict with your faith, that's in conflict with our value system as Jesus followers. Don't get caught into a way of life where you sacrifice self-control and embrace gluttony, where you spend your time like everybody else spends their time, where you live your life like everybody else lives their life. He says, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but become a new person. Change what needs to be changed by changing the way you think. Don't give the same excuses that everybody else gives. I can't help it. It's just the way that I am. And if you've been where I've been, you would do the same thing. Here's the great thing. And, and we've talked about this before. And I'll just, I'll, I'll, we're, we're wrapping it up here. If you're a curious person and you like to research things, you should go home and you should Google neuroplasticity. And you should read about it. Because Paul says, if you want to be new... You have to adopt a new way of thinking. Now, here's what neurologists have discovered in, in our modern day era with imaging, MRIs, and, and things like that. That our entire life, our brain has been mapping itself. From, from the time that we're born and we begin to engage 
in behavior. Every time we engage in a behavior, there is a connection that happens in our brain. There's a neurological connection from one point to another, and it becomes like a highway. And the more that we engage and indulge in that behavior, be a good behavior or bad behavior, that begins to be worn out more and more and more. That pathway becomes a rut, and it can become a good rut or a bad rut. And then your whole life, there is a cerebral architecture that's going on in your brain. That's the reason that you react certain ways almost all the time. That you resort to the same type of thinking almost all the time. That, that your opinions hardly ever change because you've so adopted this architecture in your brain. It's just, it's just what you do. These connections are made. But, but here, here's the thing that they're learning. Whenever you decide to engage in a new behavior, there's a connection made. And the more you engage in that new behavior, that connection gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. The old pathways begin to dissolve. And the new pathways, the healthier pathways, are now a new way of life. And here's what science has discovered. We can actually make our brains new. We can rewire our brains. And I find it phenomenal that Paul talked about making our minds new 2,000 years before science came along and talked about neuroplasticity. That you and I have the ability to change our brains, the way our brains work, the way that we think, behavior that comes natural to us, habits that we embrace. We have the ability to undo and to make healthier decisions and to engage in healthier behavior. That's why he said to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, the ideal life. So how do you change? How do I change? This is as practical as I can give it to you, and then we're done. Deposit and digest truth. Get truth in you. Read the scriptures. Get in the local church. Become part of a group and deposit and digest truth. Get as much truth in you. Deposit it and digest it. Think about it. Think about what it means for you, what it means for your life, what it means for others. Reject bad thoughts and replace them with good thoughts. You're going to have bad thoughts. We all have bad thoughts, but the thing about it is don't nurse it. Don't chase it. Don't indulge it. Replace it with a good thought. That means you may have to shut down the computer, walk away. That means you may have to leave the party. That means you may have to pick up a phone so that you can replace that thought with a good thought. But that's what you got to do. You got to adopt truth. You got to align your behavior to it. You got to make the tweaks. You got to make the change. If this is what is true, this is what Jesus says is true. This is what the New Testament says is true. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to align my life. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to surrender to it. And then you repeat and repeat, repeat and repeat, repeat and repeat. And that's how you change your life. Because when you change your thinking, your thinking will change you. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Paul taught. That when you change your thinking, your thinking will change you. So here's my question for you. What needs to change? What do you want to change? What do you have to change? What's, what's something wise that you should change? It begins with the way you think. And some of you, you need to change the way you think about your money. You need to change the way you think about your body. You need to change the way you think about your health. You need to change the way you think about what you eat and what you drink. Some of you need to change the way you think about your spouse, about your family, about your past, about your parents. 
that a change of life will begin with a change of thinking. Because we all have the capacity to change. Because we all have the capacity to change our thinking. And when we change our thinking, we change the way we live our lives. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to us. God, help us to make the necessary changes. Help us to make the desired changes. God, help us to make the wise changes. You've given us the capacity to change. You've given us all that we need in order to be who you've called us to be. So God, help us to begin to change the way that we think so that we begin to change the way that we live. In Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Would you just silently ask our Heavenly Father to speak to you and say, God, what needs to change? What needs to change in my life? Let God speak. And then begin to think differently about that thing that needs to change. God, speak to us.